morning and turn to the book of Philippians once again. Book of Philippians, chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And we noted last time that we are in a new section of the book of Philippians. We looked at the introduction, which is verses 1 through 11. And now we're into the body of this epistle. And the first section that we look at in the body of this epistle to the Philippians is verses 12 through 26, which we could call Paul's reassurance to the Philippians of his joyful condition. And so we will read verses 12 through 26 this morning. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I want not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. We trust that God will bless the reading of His Word this morning. Let's have a word of prayer. Ask for God's blessing. Our Father in Heaven, we're mindful once again of that glorious prayer of the Lord Jesus, that high priestly prayer in John 17, where Christ did pray, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. And we know that Christ always has the ear of His Father and shares in that will. And we know that that prayer will be answered. Lord, the instrument of sanctification is the Word of God. And so this morning, as Your Word is opened and preached, Lord, touch hearts, grow Thy people. Thou knowest each need. Do it for Jesus' sake and glory. Amen.
Amen. Well, this morning I want to draw your attention to verses 15 through 18, which read this way. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Now I should say we're going to look at 15 through 18a, because the last phrase, yea, and will rejoice, actually refers to the following verses, 19 through 21, etc. So we will look at verses 15 through 18a, up to, and I therein do rejoice. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is held by many to be the greatest preacher that has ever graced the English language. And I'm sure if anybody in here has read Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you would agree with the consensus of many. In his day, he would frequently preach to over 10,000 people. That's a lot of people. Without the use of microphone. 10,000. And this place is like the Surrey Music Hall. And it was said that there wasn't one week that went by in his mature ministry where there wasn't a soul saved through his written sermons, let alone preached. Not a week that went by without a soul being saved. However, as popular and as useful as Charles Haddon Spurgeon was, he faced a tremendous amount of criticism and opposition to his preaching. One article wrote this of Spurgeon. His style is that of the vulgar colloquial, very by rant. All the most solemn mysteries of our holy religion are by him rudely, roughly, and impiously handled. Common sense is outraged and decency disgusted. His rantings are interspersed with coarse anecdotes. Criticism of Spurgeon. But perhaps the worst opposition he faced was not what the newspapers said, but what other ministers said about him. Men that he looked up to, men that he would have loved, men that would have been his brethren. One brother, Joseph Parker, who actually was a preacher across town from Spurgeon, wrote this of Spurgeon. Mr. Spurgeon's was a superlative egotism. Not the shilly-shallying, don't you love the way they speak? Timid, half-disguised egotism that cuts off its own head but the full-grown, overpowering, sublime egotism which takes its chief seat as if by the right. He's saying Spurgeon is nothing more than an egotistical, proud um, egomaniac, so to speak. Another man, a well-known hyper-Calvinist preacher named James Wells, was one of the um, great preachers of that day. He would have brought in lots and lots of people to hear him preach. And he wrote this of Spurgeon, I have, most solemnly have, my doubts as to the divine reality of his conversion. James Wells, great preacher, packed out house. He said that of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon's wife actually kept a scrapbook of Spurgeon's criticisms, and only after one year the scrapbook was bulging. But she kept it. Maybe, I don't know if she sealed it up just for memento or what, but she had a scrapbook of all of Spurgeon's Criticisms, but these did get to the great preacher. He once wrote, Down on my knees 
have I often fallen. With the hot sweat rising from my brow under some fresh slander poured upon me in an agony of grief, my heart has been well nigh broken. You didn't know that behind all of the criticism and the slander, Spurgeon was hurt. It hurt dearly and it hurt deeply. And criticism and opposition hurts a preacher. It even hurts other Christians. It hurts when other brothers and other sisters gossip, backstab, slander, criticize, oppose. It hurts. One man said that it was reported that 85% of pastors say that, the criti- that criticism in the ministry is the biggest issue they face. Criticism is the hardest thing. Someone criticizes the preaching or the way you act or speak or whatever, or even with Spurgeon. They don't even know if you're saved, Mr. Spurgeon. It's very difficult for ministers. I mean, although ministers that have been preaching for a long time you might think, boy, they've got a thick skin. It still hurts. The ministry is not for the faint of heart. Paul wrote to Timothy, Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. If you're going to preach, it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. It's not easy. If you're going to stand for Jesus, O Timothy, O Christian, whoever you are, you're going to have to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, a preacher should be prepared and expect criticism, especially if none other than Paul himself faced it. Was there anybody a better preacher than Paul? Was there anybody a more precise theologian than Paul? Who could find anything wrong with Paul? If you can find something wrong with Paul, you're going to find something wrong with just about anybody. Was there anybody more full of grace that I can think of in the New Testament besides Jesus than Paul? And yet there is probably somebody sitting back when he preached going, I don't quite like the way Paul said that. I don't quite like the way Paul did this or that. And they had issue with Paul. Now Paul doesn't expressly tell us what the issue is here. We have some ideas. But they preached in such a way as to add affliction to his bonds. They're against Paul. It's amazing. Now remember, Paul is writing here, speaking about the joy that he has in prison. And we noted verses 12 through 14 was basically Paul saying, when I am afflicted, I rejoice because the gospel is advanced. Verses 15 through 18a, we noted, was Paul basically saying, when I'm opposed, I rejoice because Christ is preached. And Paul is saying, listen, although to the Philippians, I'm in prison and this is difficult and I'm chained, I'm rejoicing because of these things that are unchangeable, these things that I know God is doing, because of the things, not my condition, but because of Christ and His kingdom and His work. And so Paul, in the midst of this criticism and in the midst of this opposition, rejoices. When you're opposed and when you're criticized, or you have been in the past, what has been your response? What has been your attitude? Have you been able to rejoice? I want us all to be able to rejoice. So I want us to look at this passage. Paul saying, When I am opposed, I rejoice because Christ is preached. 
In the first place, as we come to this section, we need to look a little bit deeper at the situation Paul was in to understand something about this particular opposition. So in the first place, consider with me the character of the preachers. As we mentioned, verse 14 tells us that many of the brethren in the Lord became more bold to speak the word without fear because of Paul's imprisonment in verse 4. But it wasn't all rosy for Paul. Although many of these men were preaching in truth and from a heart of love, there were two groups. There was another group that was preaching out of contention. And even though many had been emboldened, some had been emboldened for different means, for a different reason. And so Paul writes to say, although many brethren in Rome are emboldened to preach the word without fear, there are some that are preaching very differently as far as their motives from another. So Paul goes on in verse 15 to describe the character of the preachers. He does describe both groups, both the good group and then the group that gives him grief. The first group of preachers was a joy to Paul. Some indeed preach Christ of envy and strife, and some also of good will. Of good will. Some preached of good will. And then in verse 17 he says, but the other of love. Verse 18, whether in pretense or in truth. So they preached out of good will. They preached out of love. Verse 16, they preached sincerely. And verse 18, they preached in truth. So goodwill, sincerity, love, and truth. That's what characterized this first group of preachers. And by the way, that's what characterizes any, any preacher worth anything. A preacher that preaches out of good will. His will is, is moved for the good of others. For the good of others. And these preachers specifically would have been motivated for the good of Paul even. Because they knew that he was in prison for the defense of the gospel in verse 17. The other of love knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. They knew that Paul was in prison for the gospel's sake. They knew that he couldn't preach like he once did. They were emboldened to further the gospel knowing that their beloved Paul couldn't. They're emboldened to preach the gospel to encourage dear brother Paul who's in prison. Goodwill was their motivation, which is really the basic, basic and fundamental ingredient of love. Love is good will. It is my will exercised for the good of another. And this is what these preachers are preaching for. For the good of others, the good of the Romans, the good of Paul, the good of the brethren. For their good. That's why they preach. Sincerely. Remember we gave the example used in the New Testament times of, of a pottery that would have had a crack and you would have held it up to the sunlight and the sunlight would have shown the crack and they would have said, if it had no crack, it's sun-judged and it's sincere. But if it had a crack, it was insincere. Well, again, these preachers were preaching sincerely. Their inward life matched their external life. Their heart matched their mouth. Their motive matched their message. These preachers were sincere. And so they preached in truth. Everything about them was true and sincere. There is nothing worse than an insincere preacher. There's nothing worse than a man who stands up and preaches one thing on a Sunday and lives throughout the week a completely different way. That man's 
not worthy of the pulpit. Now, nobody's perfect, but I'm talking about a consistency of life. This first group of preachers preached sincerely, but the second group of preachers was very different. They gave Paul great grief. If you look at the way that they're described, in verse 15, Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. Envy and strife. Now the word envy, you could think about envy as another word for jealousy. Envy is energized by a jealous spirit. It's desiring what someone else has because you're discontent with what you have. You're not content with what providence has given you. You're not content with somebody else being promoted or being used by God. There's a jealousy. And these preachers were jealous preachers. And you know that there are jealous preachers. They preach out of envy. They preach out of jealousy and strife. There's always some preacher that is looking over the hill at another preacher who's being used by God and they get jealous. And they preach Christ motivated by jealousy. Now you might say, there is no way a preacher of the gospel would preach out of jealousy. But it's true. And these men preached because they were jealous. But isn't that an ugly thing? Preach because... You're jealous? You know, it's amazing. In Matthew 27, verse 18, this same word is used about the Jewish leaders handing over Christ to be crucified. The Bible says, For He knew that for envy they had delivered Him. Isn't it amazing? That out of the same mouth they're preaching Christ. Their heart is involved in the same sin that brought Him to the cross. Jealousy. It was envy. It was a desire of the Jewish leaders to not let this Jesus steal their thunder. That moved and energized them to bring him to the cross and crucify and kill an innocent man because of jealousy. It is an ugly thing for a preacher to preach Christ and have a jealous heart and a jealous spirit. But it happens. There are men, unfortunately, and we got to always keep ourselves from this, that will seeing someone be blessed of God, see their ministry expanding, see souls being saved unto them, and immediately say, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with their preaching? There's got to be something wrong. Because I've been here, and I've been preaching, and I've been working, and I've not seen much. There's got to be something wrong with them. And they'll go high and low to find some dirt on them. And when they find some dirt, they'll paste it online or they'll call somebody or they'll preach it from the pulpit because of jealousy. Now it may be that someone, it may be that some preacher is being blessed by the Lord and there is something wrong with them. That happens often. But these men saw Paul come into Rome. This was their territory. This is where they preached. And all of a sudden, this man, Paul's famous, and he's being spread all over Rome, and all of a sudden, people are coming to hear him, and they're hearing him preach. And everybody's talking about Paul all of a sudden, and they're not talking about them anymore. 
Now the people in my church, they're talking about Paul all the time. They're not talking about me anymore. They're not so excited about hearing me preach. They're all excited about Paul and how Paul's preaching, how people are coming to Christ through Paul. It's all about Paul. It's not about me anymore. And there's a jealous spirit. And that's sinful and that's wrong. We've got to always watch our hearts. Jealousy is an ugly, ugly thing. And then it says in verse 16, they preach to add affliction to my bonds. Such was their jealousy that they wanted to cause Paul pain. They wanted to actually make him hurt in prison. They wanted to make him they wanted to make him feel the chain was even worse when he says here to add affliction to my bonds. It's almost like they wanted to make the chain even worse for Paul. Think about how that chain would have been rubbing on his wrist and probably would have made his skin raw. It's as if they wanted to make it even worse. They wanted to just go in there and just yank that chain by letting him know that they're out there preaching opposing Paul. They're out there preaching to usurp Paul. That's a terrible and an ugly thing. Now it even says that they preached with contention. And the word contention here, of contention, contention is the word for selfish ambition. And this really gets to the root of this kind of a preacher. You know what the problem is with this kind of a preacher? He's all about him. That's the problem with this preacher. He's all about him. It's about him. It's about his name. about his promotion. People aren't listening to me now. They're listening to Paul. Why isn't my name being spread all over Rome? I've been here for 50 years. I've been laboring with these people for a long time. Why isn't my name being spread throughout Rome? I think about Robert Murray McShane who labored in his church and prayed for revival and he left and went to Israel and it was when he left that God brought revival through a man named Burns. He wasn't a jealous man. He just thanked God that revival came. These preachers were so jealous because they were moved by selfish ambition. It was all about them. To the point where they actually wanted to cause this dear man Paul to feel affliction. You know, it breaks your heart just to read it, doesn't it? Here's this man. I mean, he's wept over their souls. I mean, this is the man that has been beaten for Christ. I mean, he's, he has scars from serving Jesus. I mean, his tears have, have been shed over them. I mean, here he is in prison. And his brethren, brothers in the Lord, all they care about is themselves. So they don't even care about the dear Paul. He deserves to be honored. What an ungodly and what an ugly and what a terrible thing. Now this brings up the question, why did they exactly not like Paul? Yes, there was definitely jealousy there. Envy certainly speaks of jealousy, but is that all that was going on? Now, this is very possible that these preachers actually disagreed with Paul doctrinally. Now, the reason why I say that is because when Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans, 
there were issues in the Roman church with regards to Jewish, Jewish and Gentile relations. And many of the Jewish Christians wanted the Gentiles to look like the Jews. And Paul had to write to them and say, no, you have liberty in the gospel. The old, um, the old ceremonies and laws have passed away in their fulfillment in Jesus. And so Paul had to write to the Romans. Now, it's very possible, not directly proven from the text, but it's very possible that some of those same people that wanted the Gentiles to look like the Jews that Paul wrote, at, wrote to and said, this is not right, you need to have greater Christian, you need to understand Christian liberty. It's very possible that their opposition to Paul was not merely because of this desire for their own fame promotion. It may have also been because they disagreed on this small matter of whether Gentiles should look like Jews or not. And so they made Paul perhaps out to be a heretic. Perhaps they spread it around the city. Paul's wrong about this issue with the Jews and the Gentiles. It's very possible because the way Paul speaks to add affliction to my bonds, it seems as if there's something even more than just, just these preachers trying to get their name out there more and more. It seems that they're doing damage to Paul. It would make much sense if they disagreed with him and they were out preaching Christ as they would say, quote-unquote, the right way. They're going to preach Christ the right way and tell everybody how Paul was wrong. I think of Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. George Whitfield comes back to his people as he preached the gospel to them and all of a sudden all his people have their fingers stuck in their ears. They won't listen to Whitfield because Wesley had told them Whitfield's doctrine is the doctrine that makes God out to be a monster. I imagine that something very similar may have been going on here with these preachers. Motivated by selfish ambition, motivated by envy, they wanted to ruin the reputation of Paul and perhaps make him out to be somebody who was in error. Well, you see the character of the preachers and want us to go on to consider the content of the preaching. The content of the preaching. Paul says in verse 16, the one preach Christ. In verse 15, some indeed preach Christ. In verse 18, Christ is preached. So whether they're, or excuse me, although their characters were different, the content of their message was the same. They all preached Christ. And Paul notes that. He does not say, because this group preached with a bad spirit, they didn't preach Christ. And if there was a, a little difference over the Jews desiring the Gentiles to look, look more Jewish, which is very possible, he still says they still preach Christ. Whatever their opposition to Paul, they preach Christ. They weren't denying the gospel. They were preaching Christ. Now this is the apostolic message. Preach Christ. That is the message of the New Testament, the message of the apostles. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.23, But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. We don't preach the signs and wonders of the Jews. We're not preaching the um, philosophy of the Greeks. We preach Christ. 
He says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. We're not preaching us. We're not promoting ourselves. We're preaching Christ. This is the message of Christianity. And when you look at this passage in the context, to preach Christ is equivalent with preaching the gospel. Verse 12, Paul talks about the furtherance of the what? Gospel. And then he goes on in verses 15 through 18 to talk about Christ being preached. So this tells us that the gospel is Christ being preached. So what's the gospel? It's Jesus being preached. You think of when Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch and it says he preached Jesus unto him. The gospel is preaching Christ. So that tells us that the content of the gospel is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I want us to understand something. The gospel is not merely preaching forgiveness. It's not merely preaching repentance or merely calling men to faith. The gospel is not someone getting up and saying, you're a sinner and you can be forgiven of all your sins. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not saying, hey, you're headed to hell, but you can go to heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not preached unless Christ's person and work are preached. You know the problem in, in many places is when we preach the, when they preach the gospel, quote unquote, they call men to faith, but they don't explain to them Christ's work, whereby He has finished the work, He has borne the wrath of God, He has fulfilled the law. They don't explain that. So there's no content for faith. Faith must have content. If there's no content, you're asking someone to believe nothing. And they can't believe nothing. There must be content. That content is Christ. And in the gospel, Christ Himself is offered to men. You cannot divorce forgiveness. I offer you forgiveness just through Jesus. Jesus is just the avenue. But I offer you forgiveness. No. You offer men Christ. Forgiveness is in Christ. Pardon is in Christ. Heaven is in Christ. The covenant of grace that is open to men, whereby God says, the covenant is open. Come and receive all the blessings of the covenant. Pardon from your sins. Forgiveness from your sins. Righteousness imputed to you. The riches of heaven. All the blessings of God. Including all the promises of God. Adoption as sons and daughters. All the blessings of the covenant are in whom? Christ. He is. The covenant. And it is Jesus that is offered to men. Christ. And this takes care of one issue. Easy believism. Some people would say, I can take Jesus as Savior, but I don't want to take Him as Lord yet. Now if you say, Jesus has provided merely salvation for you. You can come and take salvation. You might get the wrong idea that you can take salvation outside of taking all of Christ. Now, no one would ever say that. 
But people will say, I can take Jesus as Savior, but I can leave Him aside as Lord until later. But if Christ is offered, not just forgiveness and salvation, those are the merits of Christ. If Christ is offered, He is offered as King, and He is offered as Priest. He never comes to anyone as merely Savior. He is offered in the fullness of who He is. He is offered as both Lord and Savior. You cannot come into the covenant of God unless underneath the reign of Jesus. There is no one under the covenant by which God says, You are my people. I am your God. Your sins are forgiven. The law is written on your heart. There is nobody in that covenant who is not reigned by Jesus. Christ is King and Priest. And the apostolic message is Christ offering Christ. So when we preach evangelistically, when we speak to people about the gospel, we offer Jesus to them. Our whole conversation needs to go back to Jesus, needs to talk about Jesus. Not merely forgiveness, not merely have, but Christ. And we say, I offer Christ to you. You see, people will say, if you don't say Jesus died for every single individual and paid the debt of it every individual, you cannot offer salvation to every individual. But if you think about it this way, I'm not necessarily offering a purchased salvation in that sense. I'm offering Christ to people. I'm offering as a preacher of the gospel a Christ who is a perfect priest, who is a perfect lamb, who is a perfect sacrifice, and who is the one and only Savior of sinners. That is what I'm offering to people. That is what the gospel offers, a free offer of the gospel. It is, here is a Savior. You read Acts. You won't find one time where the apostles say, Jesus died for you. It's not necessary because they say, Here is a Savior who has borne the wrath of God. He is a perfect Savior. He has finished the work necessary. And they offer a risen Jesus to men. That's what they're offering. Christ in His Lordship, in His Saviorship, in all of His covenant work. Here is Jesus. That's what you offer to men. And Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Christ can be offered to anybody because His salvation is perfect and full for anybody. And He is willing to save anyone who will come. And He desires to save everyone because of His benevolence. There's not one who would come and He would say, I don't desire to save you. We offer Christ to man. That is our duty as a church, as people, as members, as a preacher. Offer Christ. So, they were all preaching Christ. The content. And then, finally, I want you to see the conclusion of Paul. What was Paul's conclusion? Look at verse 18. Paul says, what then? So what now? What's my conclusion? I've got preachers that are preaching out of jealousy to promote themselves as selfish ambition, perhaps they're preaching things that I don't even fully agree with, but they're preaching Christ. 
What's my conclusion? What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice. Yea, and will rejoice. So what is the conclusion? I rejoice. Doesn't that sound strange? You know, it's incredible. Here's this man who has given of his life for the cause of Christ. As I mentioned, he has wept in prayer over them. His body has been beaten and bruised, not only for the furtherance of the gospel, for the sanctification of this church. He's written a letter to them. He's in prison. Talk about someone who's been mistreated. Talk about someone who could, who could play the victim card. Talk about someone who many would say, you've got a right to be mad. You've got a right to resent. You've got a right to open up and let them know how you feel. You've got a right to be mad right now, Paul. I understand if you're not rejoicing right now, Paul, nobody would rejoice. But Paul says, I rejoice. But Paul, your name's being drugged through the mud. But Paul, you're being opposed. But, but Paul, I'm, I mean, this is, this is not right. This is terrible. How, how can they do this? I rejoice. Why? Because Christ is preached. What a man. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying this. For me to live is Christ. Paul says, I don't care that they're dragging my name through the mud. I don't care that they criticize me. I don't care they oppose me. I don't care what they say about me. I, to be honest with you, I don't care what Rome thinks about me. I just care about what they think about Jesus. That's what I care about. And if Jesus is being preached, I'm going to rejoice in that. I may not like the, their motive in preaching. I may, may not even like the way or certain little things they might say. But I rejoice because Christ has preached. And you know what? Probably under these men who might have been a little off preaching from a wrong motive, I bet you God saved people. And God can use broken vessels. And Paul had enough grace that he could rejoice when Christ was preached even though they preached against him to ruin his name, to hurt him, to harm him, mistreating him. Paul is a man dead to self. What a man consumed with Jesus, consumed with the furtherance of Christ and his gospel, burning with a desire that he be exalted. Would you and I be okay if our names were forgotten? if we labored and lived and served Christ and preached and gave all we had, but our names were completely forgotten, would we be able to rejoice if just Christ is preached? Now, I'm running out of time, but just want to make a note here. Paul really hurt. This really hurt him. Joy doesn't mean you don't hurt doesn't mean that you don't maybe even cry. 
and feel broken. But Paul had a deep-seated, a deep-seated joy because of the things of Christ. It was Paul's theology that gave him this joy. He believed in a sovereign God who works all things for His glory, for the furtherance of His gospel. He believed in a God who had an unfailing gospel. It was Paul's ability to see every little thing that happened in his life a part of the great master plan of God's purpose that gave him the ability to rejoice. It was like looking at a painting before it's finished and a man just swipes a big splotch of green onto the paint, onto the canvas. But Paul was wise enough, wise enough to see that splotch of green and to know that the master was painting something for his own glory. And Paul saw even the opposition of men. He knew and saw and was convicted it was for the glory of Christ. He knew that. He was convinced of that. And that was what he rejoiced in. That Christ was preached and that God was sovereignly working in the midst of all of this opposition. I just want to end with this quote. George Whitfield said, Let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me. If by that means the cause of blessed Jesus may be promoted. What cause are you and I willing to go through? What price are we willing to pay that Jesus might be magnified? Do we sit in our trial and say, Oh Lord, woe is me. Would you just change it? And I know it hurts. And I know it's hard. I know that. But the despair can be overwhelming if we don't consider what is God doing? What is God doing? God's not made a mistake. What's God doing for His gospel, for His glory, and His purposes? So we end there this morning and pray that God will bless it to your souls. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We pray, Lord, that Thou wouldst bless it every heart, make it fruitful, and use it for Jesus' sake and glory. And help those, Lord, who are in trial and being opposed or criticized, that they would have the heart of Paul and of Whitfield. Let their name perish as long as Jesus is magnified. Blessed for Jesus' sake. Amen.